Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, you may be seated. My goal this morning is to weave together elements of the Old Testament and New Testament readings to show how this warfare for your conscience that Isaiah talks about is related to the issue of doubts. The opening words of Isaiah, Comfort, yes, comfort my people, says your God. Speak comfort to Jerusalem and cry out to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, for she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Now in the immediate context of the book of Isaiah, Isaiah gets to see two things. He gets to see ahead to the destruction of Jerusalem and all that that will mean for God's people. But then also he's always looking ahead to the day the Messiah will come. And the warfare here initially for them has to do with the fact that eventually they'll come back to the promised land, they'll rebuild the temple, all of those things. But also the warfare that is being talked about here is the war over their conscience. The war over your conscience. That is the warfare that's at the heart of our passage today. So to understand this passage, we need to at least talk a little bit about the conscience. Right? If you think about it, when your conscience is functioning properly, you may feel sick, you feel bad when you've done something wrong. Because your conscience is like an internal referee or like an internal courtroom. It's making judgments all the time about things going on all around you. Both things that you've done, things that happened to you, and just things going on in the world. And this conscience is a gift from God. It's constantly trying your thoughts and actions. Are they good? Are they bad? Are they righteous? Are they sinful? We looked at this recently in a couple different Bible studies, but there's four things that are always influencing your conscience. You've got the civil law, the laws of the land, right? How many times will someone do something that's morally wrong, but say, well, it's legal. I didn't break any laws. The culture itself is constantly influencing your conscience. So much of what people believe is good or bad or right or wrong comes purely because of what they've heard and seen in movies and television, on the internet. And if you think that's ridiculous, you don't understand the nature of propaganda. Propaganda works by making you think it's not working. And it's shaping your thoughts. Our peers, right? Our friends, they can definitely shape your conscience. Maybe you think something is wrong, but now your friend's doing it. You're like, well, I thought it was wrong, but now they're doing it, so maybe it's not so bad. <coughs> then, of course, for the Christian, the primary thing that should shape your conscience is the scriptures. The problem is our consciences are not always functioning properly. They can make bad calls, just like a referee in a game. They can get it wrong just like a judge in a courtroom. That's why it has to be shaped. It has to be formed by God's holy words. Only then when we have God's word shaped in our conscience can we be sure that something is sin or righteousness. That something's either wrong or it was right. Now, there's a lot of things that go on with our conscience, a lot of different kinds of war, but the warfare at the heart of this passage 
is when our conscience feels guilty, your conscience rightly determines that you've done wrong and you feel bad about it. You're like, that was wrong, I should not have done that. But then you try to appease God and cleanse your conscience through your own works, through your own efforts, apart from God's holy words. What that does is it's a vicious cycle. It leaves your conscience burdened. It leaves it fighting. It's at war. Right? Satan then comes along and tries to accuse you. Look at what you've done. And rather than appealing to Christ and his righteousness, you try to justify yourself. Well, it wasn't that bad. Or here's all the excuses for the reasons I committed this sin. Eventually, that path leads to self-righteousness. When you stick at that too long, you end up despairing, realizing there's nothing you can do to make yourself righteous. And so this warfare at the heart of this passage is a conscience that's anxious. It's agitated. It's constantly trying to render some kind of satisfaction to God, but it can't ever do it. Its works are not enough. The law comes and it's constantly revealing your sin, and so your conscience is constantly seeking to remedy that. Talked about this in a few places, but this, by the way, also is what's going on in our culture right now with so-called woke culture, cancel culture, so-called virtue signaling, which would be better called purity signaling. What's going on is people's consciences are burdened. And because they've rejected the atonement of Christ, the only thing that can cleanse their conscience, they're constantly trying to cleanse it themselves. One of the ways they do this is by trying to cancel and get rid of anyone that they view as in the wrong so they can say, look how pure I am, I'm in the rights. It's also why this never ends. It can't stop. The conscience cannot be freed that way. You can find all the scapegoats you want in your own life or in culture, and it's not going to ease the burden of your conscience. Now, when it comes to our gospel reading, I believe, and I've talked about this many occasions before, that John the Baptist actually had doubts. And I don't think that makes him less of an amazing figure. I don't think that makes him any less of a Christian. I think it just makes him a man. He seems to be struggling with some doubts. He asks some questions. Now, we cannot do some kind of psychological exam on John the Baptist and say, well, here's why he was doubting. I mean, most likely the simple answer is, he's in prison And he thinks the Messiah is there and he's wondering, why aren't I free? You've come to free the prisoners, but look at where I'm at. I'm here in prison, about ready to be beheaded. If you're the Messiah, why is this going on? But more importantly this morning, I want to talk about where do some of your doubts come from? Not all of your doubts. There's different reasons for some of our doubts. But where do some of our doubts come from? A burdened conscience that stays burdened, that's always fighting, that's always at war, creates all kinds of problems for us. And the devil's going to be there working to tempt that conscience, to harden it, to trouble it. He's always working to confuse your conscience, to distort things. And what happens is unconfessed sin, a conscience that's burdened by sin, This constant warfare of trying to fix the problem on your own. That can lead to all kinds of doubts in your Christian life. 
Right? Think about in Leviticus 26. The Lord tells them that when they're in their sin and judgment is coming, that they'll be scared by the rustling of a leaf. Right? They're so timid, they're so scared of the coming judgment that even just a leaf rustling makes them think the enemy is there and they're going to be destroyed. That judgment is upon them. So one of the things that can happen with a burdened conscience is there's a real danger that we start to think that God is our enemy. That he's against us. When our conscience is not cleansed, when it's at constantly at war trying to cleanse itself, it begins to see God as the bad guy. God is the enemy. This is all his fault. And then we even begin to think that perhaps if we just got rid of him, then the burden of our conscience would go away. There's another problem with this as well. As sin and its consequences start to rear its head in our lives, we can begin to blame God for those problems. Or we begin to think, there's no way God can forgive me for this. Look at what I've done. Sin leads to doubt. Doubt, which itself is a sin, the sin of unbelief, leads to more sin. It just becomes a vicious cycle that we're caught up in. We become like that proverbial hamster on a wheel just running in circles, not realizing that all we're going to do is wear ourselves out. At the end of the day, our conscience will still be burdened. It won't be helped. So what we're confronted with this morning is, what about you? Do you have unconfessed sin that is burdening your conscience? Are you trying to fix that on your own? Are you caught up in this vicious warfare that Isaiah is speaking about? Has it led you to doubt God and his goodness, thinking that perhaps he's the problem? Perhaps he's against you? Perhaps even it's leading you these doubts to despair and think there's no hope for you in Christ Jesus? And that is Satan's goal. The end goal of all doubts is always to despair. To think, Christ can't really save me. I'm too far gone. Look at what I've done. Look at what I've said. Look at what I've thought. The wickedness of our sins weighs down heavy upon us. The burden becomes too great to bear. People give up. The antidote to that, the solution, is always and only the word of the Lord's. What you need then is not to fight in this endless cycle, to be at war, thinking you can take care of it yourselves, but you need a working conscience, a good and cleansed conscience that you receive as a gift from God. So how does God bring this about? What does he do? That's where we see the role of John the Baptist here in Advent in Scripture and what he does and how it prepares us as well. Right, the preaching of John is very straightforward. Repent. The kingdom of God is at hand. And John's preaching prepares us to celebrate the first coming of Christ, prepares us for a second coming, and prepares us now when our consciences are burdened that we might receive forgiveness. The voice of one cry in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted, every mountain and hill brought low. 
The crooked place shall be made straight, and the rough place is smooth. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Christians have understood this passage about John's preaching to be about how he goes out and preaches repentance, and those who think highly of themselves are humbled by it. They're brought low. They confess their sins. They repent. True humility in the Bible is brought about by God's law. True contrition and sorrow of our sin is brought about by that same preaching of the law. And when we hear that, then we repent of our sins, we confess our sins. Think about some of the things John the Baptist said. He goes to the Pharisees and says, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? The very axe is laid at the root of the tree, you're going to be chopped down. You and this whole nation. And then he says, Therefore bear fruits worthy of repentance. What are these fruits of repentance? The Bible tells us the fruit of repentance repentance includes to be displeased with sin. To depart, to actually flee from sin. And then to live in righteousness. That's what John the Baptist calls out to us. The thing is, as John preaches the law to prepare the way as he preaches it then to the Pharisees and even today to us, it's through the law that comes the knowledge of sin, Paul says. It's through that preaching of the law that we can actually look at ourselves and say, wow, look at what I've done. Look at what it's cost me. Look at what I deserve. The law comes so we can see our distress and the disease of our sin clearly. And we must see it. We must see it to bring this warfare to an end. And this is true for those who don't seem to care about sin or righteousness at all. Even including those who don't care what the Bible calls sin or not. It includes the self-righteous who think they can earn forgiveness of sins through their own works and strivings. And it's true for all of those burdened in their conscience by their sin. We need the law to really show us how bad our sin is so we can quit messing around thinking we can fix it on our own. We need the law to bring us to an end of ourselves. So we don't think we can do it any longer. Instead, we cry out to Christ for forgiveness. Both Isaiah and John the Baptist and Paul, as we'll hear in a minute, they want us to have the gift of a pure, of a cleansed conscience. They want us to have the comforts that we're going to look at in detail in just a moment. One of the ways this comfort comes to us is through holy absolution. The pronouncement that your sins are forgiven, and not just here on Sundays in the general confession, but in private confession. Many years ago, before I was a Lutheran, I remember very vividly, I was in a hotel room, I was on a work trip, and I was the only other person in the room was my boss, and he was just talking to me, it was late at night, and he's asking me questions about my life. And through our conversation, he basically got me to confess a sin I was struggling with. And he spoke the gospel to me. And it was one of the most freeing things I'd ever experienced in my life. But I didn't know what it was called. I didn't know what was going on. I didn't know what in the world had just taken place. When I finally became a Lutheran, I realized 
I had received a form of absolution from a fellow Christian. And it brought great comfort to my conscience. And I didn't even know I needed it at the time. And since becoming a Lutheran, I realized that we have a hidden treasure, as one author has called it. We have this blessed and glorious gift that when your conscience is burdened, as our catechism says, when those sins you know and feel that weigh down on your conscience and heart, you can go to private confession, confess your sins to the pastor, and hear the glorious absolution that those sins are forgiven you. That sin that's weighing down on you. That sin that causes you sleepless nights. That sin that causes you to be at war. You can come and confess it, expose it to the light of Christ, have it forgiven and dealt with. And it's this kind of glorious comfort that Isaiah is proclaiming. The holy comfort of the gospel. Comfort, yes, comfort my people. Cry out to her, her warfare is ended. Her iniquity is pardoned. She has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. This comfort gets the very hearts and meaning of Advent. Christ has come that he might deliver us from our sins. And the very heart of this is having your conscience cleansed by the blood of Jesus so you can have a good conscience, a forgiven conscience. So you have a conscience wrapped up in the righteousness of Christ. So that your conscience is no longer burdened and weighed down, but can rejoice, the very theme of this Sunday, that your conscience can rejoice in the forgiveness of sins. A good conscience, a cleansed conscience, doesn't mean you never sin. It means that your sins are dealt with not by you striving and battling and going to war, but by receiving what Christ has done in his warfare, his victorious death upon the cross for you. So too, we'll have in a minute, Adam Preuss will come up and he will go through the rites of Holy First Communion before confirmation and receive Holy Communion. One of the reasons I think it's so important for our kids at a younger age to receive Holy Communion is because their consciences are burdened by sin too. And why not give them one of the means Christ has given to cleanse your conscience so they too can be strengthened, so that they too can rejoice in all of Christ's gifts that he's given to cleanse our conscience. Right? The Bible says your conscience is cleansed in baptism. That's cleansed in the preaching of the word. That it's cleansed in holy absolution. And that it's cleansed as you receive Christ's body and blood. Through all of these means, Christ delivers the comfort of the gospel. When Isaiah 40 got translated into Greek, they used the word parakaleo, which means to comfort, to console. But it's also the word we translate as paraclete for the Holy Spirit. Paul uses this word ten times in 2 Corinthians 1 in just a few verses. Ten times to show that the fullness and completeness of comforts. Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comforts, who comforts us in all our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation also abounds through Christ. If we are afflicted, it is for your consolation and salvation, which is effective for enduring the same sufferings which we also suffer. Or if we are comforted, it is for your consolation and salvation. 
And our hope for you is steadfast, because we know that you are partakers of the sufferings, so also you partake of the consolation. The word comfort and consolation have the same Greek root word there. The English translators just change it up so it doesn't say comfort ten times, but it's the same words. Notice what Paul is saying. Then all of your tribulations, all of your struggles, all of the things that afflict you, including the burden of your sin on your conscience, that the way you're comforted is through the Holy Gospel. And then notice what he says. You receive that comfort, you find the joy in that comfort, and when you see others struggling with a burdened conscience, when you see them struggling with afflictions in their life, you turn around and say, hey, you want to know where I found comfort? I found comfort in the fact that Christ died and rose again for me. That Christ has taken my sins. I've stopped worrying, I've stopped fighting, and I've received Christ's forgiveness. Paul in Romans 8 says, Likewise, the Spirit also helps us in our weaknesses. For we do not know what we should pray for as we ought. The Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Sometimes you may be so weighed down and burdened by your sin, perhaps even by the sins of others against you, that you don't even know what to pray or how to pray. And yet it says even here that just as Christ makes intercession for us at the right hand of God, the Holy Spirit too intercedes for you. And that he takes your mess of a prayer and he translates it so that it's perfectly understandable to our Heavenly Father that you might be comforted. You might know that your sins indeed are forgiven. Isaiah will say what the voice said, cry out, and he said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass and all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades because the breath of the Lord blows. Grass. Right? This judgment. But the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands Forever. It is God's word that stands forever. Especially that word of promise, that word of forgiveness, that word of comfort, that your sins have been dealt with, that you are forgiven, that the Lord has pardoned your iniquity. You receive from the Lord's hand a double blessing. In place of your iniquity, you receive Christ's grace, love, mercy, and righteousness. It's interesting because I believe Isaiah also, in the end of our closing verses for this morning in Isaiah 40, tells us how this comes about. It's kind of, I've said this before, but the Bible mixes metaphors all the time. I know your English teacher would fail you and say you've mixed metaphors as bad, but the Bible does it all over the place. Think about how Isaiah ends this. Behold, the Lord God shall come with a strong hand, and his arm shall rule for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his work before him. So here you have a strong, mighty God who can actually bring these things about. Because he's all-powerful, he can actually take care of your sin. He can actually comfort your conscience. And it tells us he brings his reward with him, which is exactly the point of this banner. He is coming, he's bringing his rewards. But then notice what it says too. He is a shepherd king. So he's kind. He will feed his flock like a shepherd. He'll gather the lambs with his arm and carry them in his bosom and gently lead those who are with young. Christ, our powerful king, is a shepherd king, just like 
David's. Just like Abraham. He is a shepherd king, and as a shepherd king, when you are burdened, when you are weighed down by the things that afflict you and your conscience, he comes and he picks you up and he carries you to make sure that you receive that forgiveness that you need. He's mighty and omnipotent, but he is also kind and loving and gracious. So this Advent, we look forward to our king coming to rescue us, to carry us home and be with him forever. We look forward to celebrating with great joy that he came in the flesh, that we might have our conscience cleansed, that the warfare might cease. We might receive every good gift from him. And even here this morning, he's going to continue, as he already has, give you words of comfort, and even give you his very body, blood, for the comfort of your conscience and the forgiveness of all your sins. Amen. Peace of God, which passes on your standing, guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus.